Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 66. Last week, we chatted with Tracy and Ailet Rowan, the two wives of the Rowan family who have diversified their dairy farm business into a business that goes around selling flavoured milkshakes and delivering milk to your door. Next week, I'll be going and having a chat with Colin Mason, who is a veterinary investigation manager. Um, which will be another interesting chat, both of which are based in Dumfries, where, as you know, I am based. But today we're heading a wee bit further away from Dumfries. We're heading to uh, uh, California, and I'm going to try and say the name, and I'm sure the gentleman we've invited on today will correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it's Paolo Robles. Um, we're heading to uh, to speak to Jason of Tablas Creek. So, Jason, would you like to say hello? Yeah, absolutely. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, so you had it almost right. It's Paso Robles. Oh. Uh, Though the the full name of the town in like its original Spanish is El Paso de Robles, but the yeah. locals say Paso Robles. Uh, it took me years to learn to mispronounce it correctly. <laughs> Before we get on in to another excellent episode of the R2 cast, I would just like to thank the sponsor for the show today, The Scottish Farmer. A weekly magazine highlighting everything you need to know regarding the Scottish agricultural industry whether it's breaking news, events happening in the sector, market reports, classified ads, or just wholesome stories happening in the industry, the Scottish farmers got it for you. Let's pronounce it correctly. That's a good way of putting that. So what does what does El... I've forgotten already. What does El Paso del Des Robles... No, whatever that thing meant. Thing meant? <laughs> it means Paso the Oaks. Um, this okay. is... This is one of the areas where you can get from the inland valleys in California over to the coast because there's a mountain pass in the coast range. And it's an area that because of its its pretty ample rainfall for California has these big oak forests. So this is essentially this is the, the pass of the oaks, how you get to the coast. Well, it's quite funny you say that, because, I mean, when you think of California or certainly personally, oak is not a tree I think of. Um, so is that just in your region or? It's pretty common in the coastal mountains. So, um, I mean, you get further south, you get to things that are shrubbier, you get further north, you get to like cypresses and, and other kind of more fog loving trees. But in this kind of mid climate area, you see you see a ton of oaks. That's the, the kind of crown species in the forest here. Quite interesting. I've learned something already that I did not expect to get into today. Now, I, I haven't mentioned unless if you're listening, you know about Tablas Creek. I might be saying that wrong as well, and I apologise if so. I've said that correctly, so that's a win. Um, if you don't know what that is, and you haven't looked at the thumbnail, and you haven't looked at the title, um, we're here to talk about something that a listener to the podcast, uh, Brogan Patterson, has asked for for some time, uh, One on Wine. And I thought this was a really interesting one, a really good Instagram page if you want to go follow them. Um, so that's why Jason is here. It was well, what Jason's here to talk about today. Um, but before we get into sort of wine and um, all that stuff, Jason, could you tell us about yourself? Were, were you were you born into this or not? Yes, though not sort of in the aspect that I'm in now. So my dad was a wine importer. Um, he was based in, in, in the Northeast of the United States, based in the, in the state of Vermont. And represented wineries mostly from France, but also Spain and, and Italy and eventually South Africa and Australia, New Zealand. Um, and then had a network, had a, his company had a network of distributors that would sell, the, sell those wines around the United States. And I tended to, to, I grew up surrounded by wine people. And if I didn't make myself another summer job, um, I tended to get sent to vineyards to work for the summer okay. when I was growing up. So I grew up around wine, but not around California wine. It tended to be European wine. Um, and so this project, uh, the Tablas Creek project got started in 1989 and is a partnership between my family and one of the families of French winemakers with whom my dad became close through working with them as their importer. So our partners are the Perrin family from Chateau de Beaucastel in Chateau neuf du Pape in the, in the Rhone Valley in the South of France. Um, and the idea behind Tablas Creek was to kind of take advantage of the fact that California is a Mediterranean climate and should do really well with the grapes from the Mediterranean part of France and to do a riff on the things that our partners do in France here in California. Ah, uh, okay. Well, because uh, when I looked it up, I saw Rowan and I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Is there another Rowan? Uh, so it's just a partnership, right? That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so 
so you were you were younger and and your your dad was distributing wine and and now now sort of moving forward we sort sort of jumped a period of time there um was was as a kid this always what you wanted to do or did you have other plans did you go to uni or anything like that i did so i i, I always thought that in the long run wine would be a, a really interesting place to end up in a career but i also didn't see myself doing what my dad was doing when i was growing up i didn't see buying and selling other people's wines as, as all that interesting. Um, and I also didn't want to go into a family business right out of school. I didn't feel like I would have brought enough. So um, I, I taught for a while. I have a master's degree in archaeology, um, which is oh, not wow. a particularly common path into the world of wine, but um, <laughs> I found it fascinating and it gave me a chance to travel and, and teach and work on languages for a couple of years. And then ended up getting recruited into tech and working in tech for four years uh, between 98 and 02, which was the period at which Tablas Creek was kind of first getting off the ground, going from being a project where we were importing grapevines and getting our first vines in the ground into a business where we were making wine and needed to market it and sell it. So I moved out here 20 years ago at the point where it really needed somebody to, to, to watch over it as a business. Um, and have been doing it ever since. And I, I find it totally fascinating because there's so many different pieces to this business. There's the, the farming pieces, there's the kind of chemistry winemaking pieces, there's the marketing and sales pieces, there's hospitality pieces, um, and then there's the, the kind of basic business pieces, which um, people I think sometimes don't think of wineries as businesses. They have this romantic idea that you're you're sitting there with a glass of wine, looking over your vineyards and just waiting for the wine to make itself. And it's not really the way that it works, but and somehow the uh, wine just goes itself and the money just comes in with no work. Yeah, for sure. Flowing in. Yes. Just like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As you sit out in the garden and drink wine, because that's all you ever do, you know, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so did your dad start Tablas Creek? Well, not on his own, I know, but was your dad involved in that beginning? Yeah, for sure. It, this was sort of his 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 dream dream retirement um, was right. to instead of whatever sitting on a golf course or, uh, or 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 at the beach somewhere to start another business to to make the wine the kind of wine that he'd spent the last five decades selling. Um, so, so no, he never really retired. <laughs> He, he stopped yeah. doing one business, started another business and ended up working. I mean, he was coming regularly into the office into his late eighties. Um, and I got a chance to work with him for a little more than 15 years, which was, which was one of the things that I really wanted out of this. That's, that's nice. That's, that's a really nice thing. You know, your dad sort of built this up and, and you always saw yourself progressing into it and, and to have that sort of connection between the two of you is, is well, something you always keep, I'm sure. Um, just before we get into wine, I do have to ask someone who studies archaeology um, and finds himself in the tech sector. What what was that? What was the tech company? So, um, I've always been comfortable with computers. I mean, I, I was I was kind of building my own computers and programming my own my own programs in like the early days, growing up in the in the eighties and. I happened to volunteer to build the website for the archaeological dig that I was working on in grad school and included that as one line on a resume that I posted online. And I got a call from somebody saying, okay, you probably never thought of this, but we're looking for people with teaching backgrounds and some experience or aptitude with web technologies. And we're, we're trying to hire people like that. And then we'll train you on the specific programming languages we need and then deploy you out as part of our team of trainers and teach nonprofits and companies and government agencies how to put their content online, how to manage databases, how to do design and all of that. So it was, it was sort of like a, a, like a side door out of the, the teaching that I'd been doing. Um, and this was in 1998, which was kind of the height of the tech bubble here. And if you could string two sentences together and turn a computer on, you were qualified for a job in tech. And <laughs> I, I could do a little more than that, though not a not a huge amount more, but I learned a ton as I was doing it and ended up getting what for me was essentially business school. I didn't go to business school, but I, I was the seventh employee of this little tech startup in 1998. And by the time I left four years later, we had 80 employees and offices in six cities, and I'd gotten a chance to manage people and manage projects and write and teach and market and make a million mistakes. It was every everybody at the company it was their first or second real job out of college, and um, learned a, learned a ton. 
Um, and it's stuff that I that I still lean on every day um, in in the business side of what we do. Are, are you near the likes of like the Palo Altos and the the what's the place the place that like Google and all that was thought of or not thought right, of like or, Silicon Valley? Silicon Valley, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you near uh, there? We we're not far. It's about a three hour drive from here. Right. Um, but that wasn't where I was based while I was doing this. This was this was in Washington D.C., um, right. which at the time there's a, there's still a pretty big tech scene there in and around D.C. Uh, but at the time in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was sort of the epicenter of where everybody, all of these big companies and big nonprofits and government agencies were based there. None of them knew how to get their content online. They didn't have the expertise in-house. So there was a huge, but they had a huge mandate from either their either their shareholders or their boards of directors that they had to get their content online. And so there was this, what felt like an endless, endless need for, for training on these technologies. Yeah. No, it's interesting stuff. It's just, I had to ask because it was such a this thing, that thing. <laughs> it's such, it does sometimes feel like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it was a, again, it was this kind of four year detour out of the other things that I've been doing, but it's, it's, it, I feel like I do lean on it every week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there'll be a lot of skills you learn in that. Yeah, definitely. And it's quite funny. I get, I always get the same thing said to me. I'm, I'm an agricultural lecturer, but, um, I did my degree in agriculture, master's in food security, and then went on to be a, a graduate management trainee at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. <laughs> I'm always like, you know, that's the natural progress, you know, that's sort of movement there. But let's get back into wine. Um, you guys, when you look up uh, Tablas Creek, uh, you are the world's first, and I'm not going to ruin it, I'll let you get you say about that. What are you the world's first winery? So we are the first winery in the world with the new regenerative organic certification. Um, so that's, it requires a little bit of backstory. So we've been organic since we started. Um, that's something that we inherit from our partners at Bocastel. They've been fully organic since the 1950s out of a belief that that's really the only, only way that you can reliably show off your terroir, your character of place in your wines. Like you're not putting stuff on from the outside. So your wines are going to taste more like where they're grown. And I think that's intuitive to most people. Um, but organic has some limitations. I mean, it's very specific as to the stuff that it cares about. It basically wants you not to be using chemicals for your inputs that um, are controlling pests or controlling weeds or adding fertility. In practice, it's often concerned with the replacement of chemical inputs with non-chemical inputs. And this is a good thing. Like it's, it's good to be using organic fertilizer rather than chemical fertilizer for lots of reasons. But we decided that if our goal was really to show off our, our place as clearly as we could, we shouldn't be replacing chemical inputs with non-chemical inputs. We should be trying to build an ecosystem that didn't require us to put in inputs from the outside at all. So for example, rather than bring an organic fertilizer and then run tractors through our vineyards to cut the weeds and the cover crop that grow every winter, wouldn't it make sense for us to bring in a flock of sheep and have the sheep turn our own weeds into manure and our own fertility all created on site? Reduces the number of tractor passes and the soil compaction and um, increases the fertility and the microbial activity in the soil and all of that. So it was sort of a series of decisions like that that led us from organics to biodynamics, um, which is designed to create a self-sustaining and balanced ecosystem within a farm unit that doesn't need you to then intervene much from the outside, but also has this, this kind of aspect of astrology and mysticism. I mean, the biodynamics, if you read the literature, talks a lot about things like activating cosmic energies by adding a spray of this particular distillation of that root or this stew of that particular plant or this uh, crushed up quartz that's buried in a cow horn for a certain number of lunar cycles. There's, there's a lot of parts <laughs> of it that are very unscientific. Um, and the fact that it works has has led a lot of people to this system. Um, but I think it's fair to say that we've always been a little dissatisfied with, with that kind of mysticism element of it. 
Um, and so when we got a call in 2018 from a new nonprofit called the Regenerative Organic Alliance asking if we'd be interested in joining the pilot program for the new Regenerative Organic Certification, it seemed to us that it was kind of the answer to, to the shortcomings of all of the farming systems, the farming certifications that we'd been a part of before. So it starts with an organic certification. So you can't fudge it. You can't be like, well, we're mostly organic, but right. we're not certified. Yeah. You have to have an organic certification. So that's, so that's the baseline. And then there's a whole series of essentially soil building protocols that are based on what biodynamics says um, to increase your soil's carbon content and its microbial activity to avoid disturbing the systems that are created underground with the fungi and the um, and the microorganisms that that connect roots and soil. Um, it includes commitments to reducing your use of non-renewable resources like um, groundwater or non-renewable energy. Um, and that's another blind spot that both organics and biodynamics has. You could be flood irrigating a water intensive crop in a desert climate, but as long as you're not using chemicals, you could be organic. So it's yeah, so, insanely high in water intense system. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah you, you're doing great on one side, but you're completely forgetting that there's other impacts of other things. Yeah, for right. sure. Exactly. Um, and then there's two <laughs> other pillars that that I thought were really important, though they're more kind of business practices than they are specifically farming practices. One is that you have to have an animal welfare certification for any working animals on your farm. Um, and then you have to do a farm worker fairness audit to show that you are paying your farm workers a living wage, that you are investing in their skills, um, that you're setting up systems where their feedback is solicited and encouraged and acted upon. And all of this is designed so that the farm that you that, that gets this regenerative organic certification, yes, you have positive impacts on your soil, but you're also having positive externalities on your community, on the people who work for you and the communities that they're a part of. Um, and then the broader the broader um, climate and, 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 and ecosystem in general. It, it's it, you know it was quite funny that when I when I first came across you guys on Instagram I was like great a winery and they seem really proactive this sort of thing looks cool I saw World's First and I was like oh that's brilliant on the website the first thing I did not expect to see was and if I'm wrong here I'm sorry it's the other one alpacas maybe it's llamas I did not expect to see alpacas on the front page of a of a of a, of a winery and so so that was quite interesting to see and I have. So the first thing that I think when I see alpacas, maybe not sheep, but but alpacas walking through that is, do they not just eat everything? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we don't use goats, because goats really yep. will go in and eat everything. Um, alpacas and sheep, as long as there's green grass, they'll ignore dormant grapevines. So we can't have them in the vineyard in the summer because they'll happily eat the leaves and the fruit off of the vines, but they can be out there as soon as we pick. Um, so generally we'll get them back out into the vineyard, usually in October. And then they're there until we get to bud break in the spring. So we have to pull them out of the vineyard in April. So we've got essentially six months where we can have them in the vineyard and we have a we have a shepherd on staff. Um, so we have a, he designs a rotational grazing plan where they, they graze intensively in an area of an acre or an acre and a half for, but for only a day, and then they get moved every 24 hours so that they, they move before they've exhausted the food in one place. And then that regrows. Um, and then they'll go back into that original block, whatever, two months, 10 weeks later. So we'll get them through the whole vineyard in a normal winter three times. Um, and right. then we get them out. And in the summer, when they can't be in the vineyard, we use them to graze down the forest understory around the property. So that reduces the, the grasses and shrubs and dried leaves and all those things that provide a lot of the fuel for wildfires in California. So we're, we're using them to kind of create a forest fire perimeter around the property when they can't be in the vineyard being helpful. The, the, do you know, I love this. And, and I, am, I assume you've heard of Joel Salatin. Maybe not. Yeah, 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 for sure. There's just uh, so many things that are similar. I, I recorded with Joel, I think he was episode number 42, but I can't remember exactly. But uh, yeah, just you, just like you've done there. I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, they're, they're fertilizing it. They're, they're not eating the crop. They're only eating what's below them. And then you come in and they've got another thing they can do. They're working as a fire break. Like, I love it. It just is like endless uses. And I think 
when we think of regeneration, so many people are like, yeah, it's looking after the soil or it's integrating livestock and crops. But we never really look into why and, and the endless capabilities of this. And you're just proving that exactly as to how far that goes. Um, you mentioned one sort of acre at a time. What areas involved in something like this? Like, uh, totally. I'm sorry, say that again? So like what, what sort of area are you guys farming? Oh, right. So we've got right now um, under Vine, we've got about 130 acres. Right. Um, and of that, about 110 are in production. The other 20 are newly planted, but not yet in production. And then we've got another, our, our whole property is 270 acres. So um, a big chunk of that, over 100 acres is oak forest or creek bed or areas that are not going to be planted. Um, and then we've got another probably 30 acres that are still plantable, but not yet planted. And then we've got the, the 130 acres we have under vine. Great. So yeah, I didn't know if it was going to be like astronomical numbers, small numbers. So that, that, that makes quite a bit of sense. This is at the stage of the podcast where I start asking you questions that you're going to think are really silly, but um, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, back at our two cast number 61, I spoke with uh, someone called Lorraine, who's in the south of France, and they're not producing wine, uh, but they're producing cider. And I just battered her with all these different questions about wine and wine and wine. And she was like, they might sound like stupid questions, but they make a lot of sense. So I'm probably going to hit you with some of the same ones. So um, first off, you said uh, you've got 130 in production, 130 acres, 110 of which is in production, right? Uh, 20 of which has just been planted. So that's what you said, yeah, yeah. Um, just been planted. How long from just being planted to being able to be harvested is that? Is that a year? Is that multiple? Or how long are we looking at there? Three or four years, depending right. on how you do it. There is generally, if we, we will plant either fairly close together on trellises where we can irrigate the vines if we need to, to get them established, um, or we'll plant wider spaced with no, just with posts, with no, no trellises um, and truly dry farmed. I mean, even with the, the irrigatable blocks, our goal is to wean them off of irrigation over six or eight years, but at least we can help get them going. And in those kinds of blocks, you can usually get a crop your third year. Um, if it's a truly dry farm block, it's more like a fourth year. You might get a tiny crop the third year, but it's 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 negligible. So when you're talking about dry farm, just, just for those of you guys listening, just before uh, Jason and I hit record, uh, we're talking about the temperature. Now I'm here in Scotland, it's, it's the last day in August, and over the last few weeks we have seen above 25 quite consistently in the evening. And you know, 19 stone Wallace is out here struggling to, to get by. Um, but Jason told me that they're expecting upwards of 115, which is for, for UK figures is 46 uh, degrees. That's an insane heat. Do you find problems? You're talking about irrigation there, so you obviously get to a point. Do you find problems with drought or, or do grapes receive quite well to that? Or how do you work around that? Um, yes and yes. So grapes are very well adapted to hot and dry climates. If you, if you look at where they evolve, they evolve in like Eastern Turkey, kind of Armenia, that area where they average something like 15 inches of rain a year and it is hot and dry. So, I mean, grapevines are a crop which is well adapted for drought and for heat. That said, uh, 115 Fahrenheit is, is really hot. Um, and it has not rained here since the beginning of May. So um, the, and that's, that's normal. That, I mean, that's California. California generally doesn't rain between May and mid-October. Um, so the goal in the way that we farm, a big piece of it is trying to create a really deep root system that doesn't care all that much about what's happening at the surface. And grapevines are good at that anyway. They'll go down 10, 15, 20 feet if they need to, to find the, the resources that they need. Um, and then a lot of the regenerative farming that we're working on is concerned with increasing the organic matter and the carbon content of the soil, which helps that soil retain more of the moisture that we do get. So um, it's it, it seems a little um, counterintuitive, but our dry farm blocks actually hold up better in heat spikes and droughts than the trellised blocks do. Um, mm -hmm. And even though we can irrigate those trellis blocks, the, the extra competition and the fact that because of the irrigation that we used to get the vines established means that 
though they do have some deep roots also, a higher percentage of their roots are in the topsoil. Um, that just makes them more susceptible to, to a heat spike like the one that's going to be coming over the next few days. But almost everything that we're trying to do in, the, in our farming is designed to help the vines withstand something like this. So it's not going to, it shouldn't be catastrophic, um, but there are some varieties that don't have a ton of canopy or a ton of vigor that I'm sure we're going to see a certain amount of sunburn damage from and heat damage from. Um, but grapevines in general, if you're looking at different crops, grapevines are probably one of the best at dealing with things like this. And and what what sort of rainfall are you looking between October and May over the winter time? You know what what are you seeing there? Our long term average is about twenty six inches a year, and it just about all comes between October and May. So um, if you actually if you do the do the math and plug it in on an annual basis, we get enough rain in the winter that we would be a temperate rainforest, yeah. um, and then in the summer it's a desert. So it's that Mediterranean climate, that swing between the kind of cool, wet winters and the hot, dry summers that that, that kind of signify this climate in California. I mean, just trying to do some quick maths, 26 inches will be about 700 mil. A little more. A little more, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, 750, something like that. Yeah, I mean, here in Scotland, you're talking high nines into a thousand. It's not miles behind. <laughs> it's just... No. Uh, you know, we get pour downs in July. <laughs> we, we do not. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yes, yeah, so it's working with that almost the two extremes. Um, yeah, okay. So that, that makes a bit more sense. Um, from you, you mentioned about the shepherd, and I, I meant to ask you at that point um, how many staff are you employing? So we've got, if you look at across the whole business, we've got about 50 employees. Um, <laughs> about half of those work in our tasting room. So that's, I mean, that's the biggest chunk of them. That's the hospitality side of what we do. We'll see I don't know, 25 or 30,000 people come through, come through the winery this year to visit and, and taste. Um, we've got a full-time field crew of 10 um, who are working out in the vineyard, plus our viticulturist and our shepherd. So we've got a dozen who are, who are specifically out in the vines on a day-to-day -day basis. We've got five full-time winemakers, and then we've got assorted other people to do the marketing, wine club, sales, accounting pieces of what we do. You said something culturalist there, and I didn't hear the first part of the name. What was that? Uh, vit viticulturalist. So that's basically a grapevine-specific um, plant guy. Okay. <laughs> a grapevine-specific plant guy. You'll probably stick to viticulturalist to sound better. Um, <laughs> Could you give us a rough idea of um, sort of the calendar of, of, let's look at grape production as opposed to wine production, um, how that runs around? Yeah. I hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the R2Cast with another really interesting guest. I would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today, The Scottish Farmer, and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. So the first thing every year um, is you prune. So your vines are dormant in the winter and will prune typically starting in January and finishing in early March. And that gets us in, in ready for bud break when the, when the vines sprout and come out of dormancy sometime in late March or April. Um, then they, they grow from there. We'll hit flowering usually sometime in May or early June. Um, and then the, the grapes grow all through the summer. We'll hit verasion, which is a, a mo the moment where they stop increasing in size and start accumulating sugar. Um, they also change color. If it's, a, if it's red grapes, they'll go from green to red. And if it's white grapes, they go from green to kind of gold. Um, that happens usually starting in end of July or beginning of August. And then we'll start picking usually end of August and go for a couple of months till the end of October. Um, and that's just because we've got so many different grape varieties that we work with. They just ripen at different, at different times. Yeah. Um, and then we try to put the vineyard to bed for the, for the rainy season. So we'll be out there. We'll be um, spreading compost. We'll be um, seeding for cover crops. If it's an area that we tilled the, the year before, um, usually starts raining sometime around then late October or November. Um, and then the vines go dormant with the first frost. Um, it's similar again, November sometime usually, and then we're back to the beginning of the year. 
And you said, you know, a vine can be anywhere from three to four years from planting to basically be, be producing. How long, once they're producing, can they be producing for? <laughs> and so, so grape, vines, grape vines have a roughly human lifespan. So, I mean, you could you could get crop off of your vines for over 100 years, um, assuming it stays healthy and nothing doesn't catch a disease or um, doesn't get eaten by rodents or um, so. Some of it depends on how you've chosen to farm it. Um, there are ways that are more stressful on the grapevines and, and are more likely to mean that your vines will get exhausted after, say, 30 or 40 years and need to be replanted. There's other ways of farming them that will hopefully give them a longer, longer lifespan. Um, and what tends to happen is grapevines reach full productivity at age like six or seven. Um, and then they're they're fully productive for another. 15 or 20 years. And then they start to see, you start to see this sort of long, slow decrease in productivity. But because the root system continues to grow, it, there tends to be a corresponding increase in quality. So there's always a point at which like you're having to judge, like this block is now 35 years old. It's starting to produce less fruit, but that fruit is really amazing. Like how long do we let that go? Um, eventually you let it get to a hundred years old. Maybe the vines are only producing a cluster or two of grapes per vine. Uh, but those cluster, that cluster or two could be incredible. Like, but you don't want your whole vineyard to be a hundred years old sure. because then you're, you don't have a business. So there's, there's always a little bit of a, you should have a plan in your head of, okay, we know that we're going to replant when we get to this production level, or when we get to this age on this block so that we can have a balance of younger blocks and older blocks. Do you have a rough age that you sort of work to? I mean, in my head, it sounds like 50, 60 seems like the right sort of figure. Um, if it were 50 or 60, that would mean that a big chunk of your vines would be already, I mean, most of your vines would be in that declining production phase. Yeah. So more common is is probably 35 or 40 as an right. average age, um, because you want some you want some younger, vigorous vines as well as some of the older vines. Uh, but we didn't start planting our vineyard until 1992. So our oldest vines are only 30 years old now. Um, so we haven't gotten to any blocks that we have replaced just as part of a normal schedule, but we have some blocks that we had to replace because they got virused or too high a percentage of them got eaten by gophers or ground squirrels and needed to be, we're just missing vines and needed to be replanted. And, and a, a, a wine grape, is that not nice to eat? Or are they are they dual purpose? Um, they make terrific eating um, right. as long as you don't mind seeds. So that's the main difference: is that table grapes in general are seedless. They've been bred to to reduce the size or eliminate the seeds. Um, there are some wine grapes that are like the skins are so thick and the berries are small and they're so full of seeds that it can just be kind of hard work eating them. <laughs> But they're delicious. They're super intensely flavored. They're sweeter than table grapes um, by by quite a bit when you pick them, um, and the flavors are really intense. You just have to deal with the skins and the seeds. And to be honest, the seed thing never bothered me. It's kind of like eating a pistachio. You've always got to work out for the nice flavor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I always wonder. Like if I've always wondered that, I probably could have googled it. But I kind of like to hear from people if they they sort of work work both ways. Um, Tell us about the winemaking process. I'm sure that's why everyone's listening to this. They want to know how to make wine. Um, <laughs> tell, us what, tell us what's involved. So there's lots of different ways you can go about it. I mean, for us, we tend to be pretty hands-off in the winemaking process. The thing, the thing about grape juice is that left to its own, it will, it'll become wine. Um, it, it could also become vinegar if things go wrong. But um, in general, <laughs> there are yeasts that are just in inherent like out there wherever grapevines grow that will start the fermentation process naturally um, and will ferment the sugars away um, and create alcohol and carbon dioxide and some heat. So, so basically you have a choice as a winery, like do you work with the yeasts that are native to your environment or do you bring in a cultured yeast and have a very specific uh, result? So, and a little bit the difference between, say, a bread baker working with a sourdough culture that they've started and built up over time, or working with a commercially available yeast, you get you get something different um, with each choice. 
And we've always believed that the yeasts that we have here are a part of our terroir, a part of our character of place. And so we have not been, um, we have not released a cultured yeast in the cellar. So when things get picked, if it's a red grape, um, it comes in and it gets, it goes through a, on a sorting table. So we toss out any leaves or any underripe clusters that are there. And then it goes through a destemming machine that essentially knocks the grapes off of the stems. And then those grapes and any of the juice that's created in that process get pumped into tanks to ferment. Um, at that point, you have to keep the skins and the juice mixed because the skins want to float to the surface as carbon dioxide bubbles form. And so if you let that happen, um, that starts to dry out. You don't get the extraction of the colors and the flavors that you would want into the wine. So you've got to mix that a couple of times every day. There's different ways to do that. You can either physically push the what's called the cap. You can push that cap of skins down into the wine or you could pump wine out from under the bottom and splash it down on top of the cap. Or you can, um, we use an air compressor for a lot of our fermentations and have a big wand that we stick through the top of the cap and then bubble air in there. And that splashes the cap apart. And that's actually the gentlest way of doing this. So you do that a couple times a day for two weeks, more or less. And at that point, you've gotten enough extraction. If you leave it for too long, it can become Teutonic, like, like a pot of tea that you've let the, the tea leaves steep for too yeah. long. Um, so you have to be tasting it and ready to pull the, the skins off when you get to the level of extraction that you want. It's usually before all of the sugar is gone. Um, and then it'll finish its fermentation in barrels. Um, if it's a white grape, the process is a little different because you don't generally ferment white grapes with the skins. So those come in and those get pressed right away. We have a big, uh, it's called a bladder press where the grapes fall down on top of a this essentially rubberized canvas balloon. And then that gets inflates and that squeezes the grapes against the side of the cylinder. Um, and then the juice that's created falls down into a pan and gets pumped from there into either barrels or tanks to ferment. And those are easier because you don't have to keep that mixed with anything. It's, it's, it's a, it's already all liquid. So those, those, everything finishes fermenting in some number of weeks, two, four, six, eight weeks. Um, and Meanwhile, you're deciding, do I want to put these different lots together? Do I want to keep them separate? We tend to keep things separate for most of the fermentation process. We don't start um, putting our blends together typically until the spring, March or April after harvest, after everything's done fermenting, has had a chance to settle down a little bit and we have a chance to evaluate its, its character. Um, and then we'll, we'll put the blends together that we that we think are the right combinations. And then those will either go, if they're reds, back into barrels to age for longer, or if they're whites, could either go into barrel to do a little more aging or can just go back into a stainless steel tank to get settled and ready to bottle. So typically it takes two years for a red wine to go from harvest to, to bottle and market and a year for a white wine to go from harvest to, to bottle to market because you don't need to give it that extra aging. The only thing I think, you covered it. I just didn't quite get it. Why do you do the reds with the skins and the whites without? So the most of the flavor of a red grape, as well as all of the color, is in the skins. If you've ever opened a red grape, or yeah, they're not red. red sure. grape, the the juice inside is is white or clear. Yeah. So um, you can actually, like in champagne, they make white champagne from red grapes. If you have like a Blanc de Noir that's made from Pinot Noir grapes, but they just squeeze it right away. So it doesn't get any of the extraction of color from the skins. So if you want to make a red wine, you've got to, you've got to keep the skins and the juice together for a while. Um, just think, you know, you said the tasting and there's a tasting room and stuff. And I'd quite like to hear about the tasting room. It sounds quite interesting, but when you were younger, folk always asked you what you wanted to be. I assume if you asked just about any adult, what do you want to be? A wine taster is probably like... <laughs> <laughs> so but what does that job entail like but what you said it was a part of the process is tasting is it waiting for a specific taste or is it just an excuse to get drunk <laughs> <laughs> no in fact um really young wines particularly young red wines are often not a lot of fun to drink because the tannins in them are so aggressive um that um you're you're doing it because it's an important thing to do and it can be an interesting thing to do but it would not be what you would choose to drink as a beverage i wouldn't think um and when we're we're doing these evaluations you're tasting and spitting uh, because it's like any other thing that you're trying to 
you're trying to do with a clear head, um, your decision making gets a whole lot less good if you've if you've swallowed all of those sips of all of the different samples that you had. So the last, the last batch are somehow always brilliant, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or always terrible. Uh, so so typically, what we'll do is we'll try to we'll do this in a systematic way. So when we get when we get to the spring and we're putting our blends together, we'll taste in flights. So we'll taste say four glasses in front of us at once, all of the same grape variety, and we'll taste them blind. So we don't know what each of those is, or we'll know, for example, that these are all Syrah grapes or Syrah wines, but we won't know that Syrah glass one is from the top of the hill from the block that we loved the year before. And Syrah glass two is from the last pick that we thought would never get ripe. And Syrah three is from this winemaking experiment where we use this new kind of barrel. Like we don't want to know any of that because that's like, that's just going to bias our, our evaluations. And so we'll taste them blind against one another, give them grades. And that's the first stage of our, of our blending trials where we're trying to identify the really extraordinary lots um, and then we're trying to identify lots that, so there's sort of two things. We want to identify the really extraordinary lots that we're going to select that into our reserve ones. We want to identify any lots that it seems like there's maybe a problem with, like something, those are usually things that we can address in the cellar. Like maybe it's not quite done fermenting or it's a little oxidized or it's a little reduced. So we want to identify those. And then beyond that, with the whole swath that's in the middle, we want to identify, is this something that we want to keep on its own? Or is this something which is going to benefit from being blended with another grape variety? So sometimes something is so quintessentially that grape that it would be a real shame to blend it away. And so we'll flag those lots to do as bottlings on their own. And then there are other ones where maybe this has beautiful fruit. It's really lush and juicy and, and fun, but it doesn't have a lot of color. It doesn't have a lot of structure. It might end up being a little simple if it were on its own. Okay, great. This is going to be a great blending component with another lot that we know might be tannic and powerful and serious, but maybe not very giving or very approachable. So um, that's the second stage is identifying the character of these. And then the third stage is brainstorming the blends that we might want to make and then tasting those ideas against one another and trying to come up with what the right solution is for a particular wine in a particular year. Okay. And I'm basing this following question purely on my extremely low knowledge of whiskey. I assume those blends are cheaper than the, the single variety. No, actually, um, that's, that's not though that there, that is a model in the world of wine where sometimes people will have their hundred percent varietal bottlings, um, be their most expensive and then the blends are from what's left over. For us, we have essentially the very top things that we make are our blends. Um, and those are the best lots that we have in the cellar then blended to be the right proportions. And that comes from the heritage of where these grapes are from and what our partners do. In Chateau Neuf du Pape, almost everything is a blend. So um, that's the that was the, the model that we, we started with. Um, and then in the middle are a lot of those varietal bottlings. So we've, we've flagged maybe the top 10 or 15% to go into one of those reserve blends. And then the middle is these varietal bottlings. And then we have a couple of tiers of blends below that, where um, in terms of price, it falls below both the, like our flagship blends and the varietal wines. And then we'll have a couple of tiers uh, below that for the lots that we like and that are, are good and friendly and pretty, but maybe aren't as dramatic as the things that we've chosen for the higher tiers. Oh yeah. Got you. I, I did not expect that answer, I'll be honest. Um, you mentioned about 10, 15 minutes ago uh, tannins, and now I'm going to see if I can show off here, and if it's wrong, it's embarrassing. But from what I understand, when you produce wine, if you just produced wine by pressing and whatever, it would be cloudy. And to make that clear, you use, and I can't remember which one's which, is it tannins and white wine and egg whites and red wine, or am I completely off the mark here? To... No, so you're thinking of, you're thinking of fining agents so that's you right. can basically you can find with that's basically a clarifying um product that you'll put into your wine it can be done there's a clay called bentonite that a lot of people use there's egg whites you can do it with milk protein um and that will that'll keep a wine from being hazy um but tannins are just it's this kind of acid that's inherent in the skins of wine grapes it's the things that make your mouth feel fuzzy in a red wine right. or in tea or coffee. Um, it's, a, it's a bitter kind of bitter tasting kind of acid. 
And that makes it sound really unpleasant, but a certain amount of bitterness is, is really valuable because it helps balance the fruitiness and the lushness of the, of the grapes fruit characteristics. So um, the, they're, they're inherent in grapes, but they are only found in the skins. The tannins are found all in the skins, not in the juice itself. Okay. Got you. Oh, so I half kind of got that right. More than half didn't. <laughs> it's close enough. I'm, I'm conscious of time, uh, Jason. I, I am, uh, Jason's got an Instagram live to do in 10 minutes. Uh, so I don't want to take you away from that. Um, but I've really enjoyed sort of, you know, in this R2 cast, we've, with everyone only yesterday or was it yesterday two days ago uh, we had a cranberry farm that was released uh, for the podcast number 56 with uh, with a couple in canada which is really interesting um, and here we are talking about uh, another type of juice made from berries just a wee bit more exciting than some folks eyes i'm sure um, and that is nothing against cranberries uh, brian and, and uh, mandy um but every r2 cast jason uh, finishes with two questions uh, I, I, first off thank you very much for coming on i appreciate it i really enjoyed this if i had another hour i'd have probably had more wine questions but um there's one thing i do want to say before i ask these questions as well I love the way you say wine and like design and oh, your accent's fantastic. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the two questions I end every R2 cast with is uh, first off, where do you see yourself in five years? And secondly, and <laughs> this is going to be a really interesting one. Uh, what would the tips you have for folk coming into the wine industry be? Um, okay, so I'll answer the first one first. Um, so I hope a lot of the stuff that we're doing now we're just starting to see the results of. So for example, that regenerative organic farming, um, we just got the certification in 2020. Um, we're only a couple of years in, there's only right now six other wineries that have it, but I know that 50 more are in the application process. And I really hope that in five years, we'll see this sort of farming spreading in a serious way through the wine community. And I think that's possible. I think wine in a lot of ways has the capacity to be kind of a leading voice for this kind of transformation in agriculture, because all of these choices are also hedges against climate change. They help us retain more of the, the water and the nutrients that we have, and they make better grapes, they make better wine. So it's not a choice between like doing the right thing for the environment and making the best product that you can make. It's they're, they're totally in alignment. So I hope that we'll see a lot more of that. I'm also excited for a number of the new grape varieties that we're, we're just starting to get into production. We have four grapes that we've debuted since 2019. Um, and those are all coming from young vines, but there are several of them that I'm really, really excited about. Grapes like Vacarez, I think is going to be really, really fun. Um, Picardin, um, <clears throat> Senso. So we have some new grapes that I think I think are, are going to be exciting. We have some new vineyards coming online that I think are going to be exciting. So that's what I'm hoping for in five years. I hope for more farming, more other people farming the way that, that we've been pioneering um, and more, more of this wildly interesting collection of grapes um, for us in production. Um, and then for people who are looking, looking to, to find a place in the wine industry, my advice is always taste as many wines as you can find a tasting group. Um, there are, they're, they're everywhere. Um, often they're run by, by retailers or by, um, local sommelier training groups. Um, there's the, the W set, the wine and spirits education trust that does classes, get yourself around wine people and you'll find that the opportunities will flow from there. Um, but taste as many wines as you can develop your palate um, and and start to make some connections because there's all different ways you can be involved in wine from the selling side of it to the to the making side of it to the um, education side of it um, and and a lot of those you don't have to be anywhere near wine country to do it mm -hmm. um, so I would just say get involved in your local in your local wine community and 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 it'll happen from there. Good tips. I'd say five year plans interesting. I always like to focus on something new that's exciting, like you're saying those those new varieties. Before we finish, um, Jason, one question I would have for you is out of the Tablas Creek offerings of wine, what would be one you'd advise most? Or is that just all of them? <laughs> you just asked me like which child I love the most. <laughs> so our, our flagship wines, we call Esprit de Tablas and Esprit de Tablas Blanc. Those are really the wines that we model after what our, what our French partners do. 
Um, and that's the, I think, I think I can safely say that those are the wines that we came here to make. So if people can find those, um, that's, that's probably the best possible, um, kind of crystallization of what we do, but honestly, I mean, anything, everything that we make, whether that's from the Patelin de Tablas wines that are the wines that are the least expensive that we do up through those varietal bottlings to the, to the Esprits at the top tier, um, I think, I think and and really believe that if if you find any of them, you'll get a really good sense of of who we are and what we do, and and hopefully really enjoy them too. And as I'm sure a lot of my British viewers are thinking, do you ship out with the US? Um, we do. We have actually a very good um, good importer in the UK. So our our import agent in the UK is Liberty Wines, um, and they have a whole network with with restaurants and and wine shops all over the UK. Excellent. Well, there you are. If you're looking for some Tablas Creek wine, there is definitely a way you can get it if you're in the UK. Funnily enough, my I think my main demographic now of non-YouTube uh, platforms or Spotify, Apple Podcasts is actually in the States. So maybe this will actually help you as well. <laughs> um, but no, Jason, it's a pleasure to talk. Um, I understand you're very busy and I appreciate your time muchly. Um, so th- thank you for that. Uh, it's it's been, it's been an interesting one. I love the I love having a chat with folk about stuff I know nothing about. I mean, I generally barely even drink wine. You know, I'm just interested in the food side that that the process is involved. And and as I said, if we had more time, I'd have probably taken your whole day. So so thank you for that. And maybe if I'm ever out your way, I'll come and try try some of the wine and the grapes from the actual place. Um, so yeah, I hope you've enjoyed your your hour with myself. <laughs> Absolutely. Grand, and uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch. And for those of you guys listening, I hope you've enjoyed our two cast number 66. As I said at the start, um, number 67 next week, we'll be talking to Colin Mason. So if you have any interest in farm veterinary, maybe you're looking at getting into veterinary, he talks about the ways and how you can find yourself getting into it and what he now does, not as a sort of conventional vet, more sort of looking at disease investigation. So another instant chat there as well. Um, thank you very much, Jason. And to everyone else listening, we shall see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Well, that's it. Another R2 cast finished. Another agricultural mind opened up. And I would just like to say that getting these guests on board uh, does take time uh, and it always has done. But I've now went weekly and with that comes even more time required. And I would just like to finally thank once more the Scottish Farmer for sponsoring the show and making that much more possible Please be sure to get in touch if you've any ideas of people you'd like to see on the podcast or maybe ideas you have for me presenting better because I definitely do require that. See you in the next one.